it hit 5,000 signatures and then it hit 10,000 signatures and it hit 15,000 signatures. And every kind of step of the way, there was a lot of pride and a lot of, um, I think a lot of celebration because, you know, what I got to witness was, you know, the young people who were part of the youth advisory circle, but I think young people in all other kinds of places started to feel like people in British Columbia, in their cities, were learning about them and were demonstrating by signing this petition that they cared about them and their futures and wanted them to be part of their community. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to As Word Spreads, a BC podcast by youth for youth. Welcome to episode seven of As Word Spreads. I'm your host, Shay, and with me here is our guest, Dylan Cohen. For this episode, we're going to do something a bit different. We're spreading the word of two events, one on September 30th and the other on October 24th. So Dylan, what exactly is happening on those dates? Well, I'm organizing with First Call BC and the Vancouver Foundation's Fostering Change Initiative, a series of events for youth and care to engage in advocacy actions on our experiences transitioning out of the foster care system. Sounds exciting. Yeah, I'm really pumped about it. How do you hope this will better outcomes for youth transitioning out of care? Well, I think that you probably have some understanding that youth are the best uh, advocates for our own experiences and that we're the policy experts. That's kind of the approach that has been taken for a number of years from before I moved to BC. And I think that it's a really powerful way to look at those affected in organizing as the, the center of solutions-based um, based, based work, right? So this project is to uh, engage youth directly in the center of policy issues by bringing youth to meet with their MLAs and bringing youth to hold a public demonstration with allies and with a number of other folks in the community um, in front of the legislative buildings in Victoria. And do you have an idea of what you want the rally to look like so far? In your perfect world, what's October 24th going to look like? October 24th is going to look like uh, 50 people, maybe 100 people if we can get two buses, coming from Vancouver on the ferry together. And the ferry would be a really exciting and uh, like loud time where we're building signs and we're getting really excited to like be public and show as loudly and as visibly as we can why the public needs to support youth aging out of care. And ideally, the rally will be a demonstration for politicians that using them their policy to further the lives of youth in care is going to be a politically attractive thing for them to do, that governments will be benefiting themselves in the public's view by creating better outcomes for youth in care. And we can do that with really clear policy that youth advocates will speak from, right? Like, I imagine you have some perspectives on what you think needs to be changed in the system, right? Absolutely. So, so what would you want to see at the rally? I'd want to see definitely groups of youth who have care experience, youth who are still in the system and might be struggling so that they can tell their story firsthand. Because, you know, I aged out in 2014. I've 
doubt a lot has changed, but situations are always changing for youth in care. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely adult allies, all those people that support us post-19. It's really important to have those caring connections for sure. Yeah, and the adult allies piece is an important part of the September 30th day because one of the workshops on that day specifically run by PeerNet is about how adults can be better allies to youth when they interact with us or try to support us in advocacy. Um, But it's great to hear that you want to be part of sharing stories and hear other youth that might not have the space normally to share their stories on October 24th. And I, I also want to make sure that we're really clearly and concretely putting forward a policy agenda. Fortunately, like, I mean, are you familiar with any of the research that Fostering Change has done? Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, are there any reports that speak to you? Through Fostering Change? Yeah. Or even anything in in Vancouver's... I think the last report that really hit me was Pages. Mm -hmm. And also Santana's, The Girl in the Tent. Mm -hmm. It really breaks my heart hearing people on the street still talking about her, and they're still... She's still the girl in the tent, no matter how loud we've tried to yell her name out. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty upsetting to hear voices like that that become their story and that's why I'm I'm a little nervous about it becoming a storytelling session. Yeah. Uh but I I think that youth as ad- advocates and youth as experts is a really powerful way for us to frame our work as uh like a vehicle for better outcomes vis-a-vis the, the knowledge that you have, right? For sure. It's less about the personal situation I've been in and more about the situations that a bunch of youth in care have faced that are similar. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to pick out the similarities and look at what really is going wrong rather than the personal story of each individual. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's like the themes that come up, right? I, I saw this uh, report from the Children's Advocate in Manitoba, and they do this thing called collective storytelling where they take a common experience that might be really specific and in their annual report to illustrate the kinds of calls that they're getting for advocacy they'll detail a very specific person's life like they'll talk about their their name and their um, and their siblings and maybe the community that they move from or whatever and all this is actually just a fictional like made up um, made up community or made up person but it illustrates this common theme where youth are, you know, maybe consistently advocating because they don't have or needing advocacy because they don't have clothes or because they're getting moved spontaneously when it doesn't really make sense for them. So I think there's lots of really neat ways we can look at storytelling that will effectively make the change we want to see. Absolutely. So going back to September 30th, how would I be able to sign up and when's the deadline? Yeah, so September 30th is uh, an event that's being managed by Fostering Change. So Natalie, the organizer, and a few other folks there are working so hard and so passionately to make sure that that event goes out, goes off seamlessly. So in terms of registration deadlines, I would encourage you to contact Natalie, uh, which is natalie.ord at Vancouver Foundation. Um, O-R-D? Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, and also um, check out the Fostering Change website if you want to learn more. But... I think that while we have our best efforts to put forward a deadline on uh, signing up, if people want to show up that day and they think they have important things to say, we encourage them to be there. So September 30th will be a really uh, important way for youth to get involved. And that day really is, is about making sure that we're prepared for the 30th. So it's a celebration of all the work that has been done by Fostering Change, which 
as we as you know is in its sunset year um, but also a way for us to cohesively craft a message that shows what youth and care are asking for and what we want to see happen on October 24th. So in that day, we're going to put forward a bunch of policy proposals and have some sort of conversations about what what kind of priorities we should have and what, sh what we should recommend to the government. And once we have those ironed out, we'll take that information and arm people directly uh, with the skills they need to really passionately and effectively advocate on October 24th in front of, you know, maybe 40, 60 MLAs. That sounds lovely. So are there Ways First Calls able to support people on their journey to the locations? And where are we meeting exactly for the events? Yeah, so September 30th, which is the celebration and this advocacy uh, policy priority setting, is... Uh, meeting a commercial on Broadway, I think at 9 a.m. on Saturday, September 30th. And there's a bus there, but obviously space is limited, and I don't think anyone wants to see someone show up and not not be, have a space on the bus. So definitely would encourage people to get in contact with Natalie and see uh, what, what the situations are, because I'm not doing that organizing directly. And then October 24th, which has two components, right? It's got the youth convening where we're going to have the 41 MLAs who signed the pledge, the fostering change pledge before the election. Right, do you know what the pledge is about? I do, but maybe you want to speak on it a little more just in case viewers don't. Yeah, so the fostering change pledge was a few different components, but uh, what's most important to our work was that um, almost all of them signed that they would advocate for increased AYA funding and all of them signed that they would meet with youth in the fall. So there's a few different components there that uh, we can use to further our policy advocacy because many of these politicians, before they were elected, agreed to implement some of our, our requests. So on October 24th, this is where that meeting where we asked um, politicians and candidates to sign will actually occur. So we're going to hold a, a convening where uh, youth and, and allies and advocates and the MLAs will come together and we'll have dinner at the or lunch at the Hotel Grand Pacific. And we'll have a really concise message where after work on September 30th and other days, we will craft and deliver this, um, I guess, passionate and, and knowledgeable and well-researched set of information that will get us um, our, our policy goals met. And then the other part of September of October 24th is the rally, which we're talk talking about a little bit, and I can get into more details after. but. In terms of youth that want to show up and want to support, we're definitely able to support with that. So for many folks, I'm going to think they'll be taking the bus with us, and I have yet to organize that. But if you go to um, firstcallbc.org slash fostering dash change, or if you check out the Facebook event, Stand Up for Youth and Care, or Show Up for Youth and Care Victoria, that'll, sh that'll bring up the rally. If you look at my name on Facebook, Dylan Cohen, I'd be happy to connect you with folks. There's a form that I have so people can sign up and indicate what kind of support they need to show up, whether it's, you know, a bus or if they need subsidized um, ferry tickets or if we just need to pay for that all. And we'll be able to make sure that people are fed throughout the day and people are getting supported on the ferry. And like I'm imagining it'll be a really like celebratory time. Imagine all of us on this ferry together, really excited, and all of us making these signs and then rallying later on in the day, and then taking the ferry back and celebrating our, our wins where we um, effectively 
conveyed our message to politicians and the public that youth in care needs support and that that support can happen uh, today. Absolutely. So just to get in touch again, uh, if people need to, dylan.coh at gmail.com works. You can put that in the description of the podcast if that works. And my name on Facebook or the firstcallbc.org website has a fostering change page on it where we can uh, we can suggest folks to get in contact with me. But all, all these links will be in the podcast description. And I'd encourage people to uh, get in touch if they have any questions at all. So if I'm unable to make it on September 30th, would I still be able to come on October 24th? You bet. Yeah. So September 30th is really a day where we're going to be crafting a message and we're going to be prioritizing some of the recommendations. But with that said, there's going to be a number of folks that for whatever reason, September 30th doesn't work. And I want to make sure, uh, because I know how important being included is, I want to make sure that youth feel like they can put forward their own agenda and their own message with us on October 24th. So we only have an hour with the MLAs, which means that we're going to have to be really concise and not everyone is going to be able to speak, but we can work out teams or breakout groups or something that will allow the average youth that didn't get a chance to participate on September 30th an opportunity to get their message involved and speak to the to the MLAs um, almost candidly. And then beyond the October 24th day, MLAs sign this pledge and they'll be open to meeting with youth who want to coordinate uh, an individual meeting in their own constituency. So in, uh, in Vancouver, I'm organizing a number of youth to meet with their MLAs where we're going to just have local meetings with our, with our um, constituency offices and speak about these issues on a personal level to the MLAs that are not necessarily going to be there on October 24th or the youth that can't be there. So there's a number of ways that you can participate even if you can't show up on September 30th. And then it's definitely not the requirement to show up on October 24th. I'll make sure that you can get there if you need, if you need support in doing that, even if you are very new to this work. It's all so exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. For our next segment, I'd like to introduce Chris Archie. Thanks for taking the time to meet with me today, Chris. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself to our audience? Hello, thank you. Thanks for having me. Wake no wake, Chris Archie Rinsquest, Sequatman de Gelmuch, and Sema from Seskin. So that's me saying hi in my, uh, the language of my kind of mother's people, Sequatman uh, Jean, and also letting folks know that I um, have the blood of my mother and her ancestors with me uh, from a piece of land and a community called Seskin, also known as Broken Rock or Canham Lake. And, um, and my father um, and his family are settlers to Canada, um, going back several generations. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here today and happy to connect. And um, a little bit about me as it connects to this work, this is kind of how I generally let people know about about me is uh, I've had a long history in uh, child rights education and actualization and have done community and civic engagement work, um, youth engagement work for a number of years and additionally have had um, experience being in foster care when I was in my teens and then became a foster parent myself for my um, 
siblings when they were teens. I was 19 and I had a toddler and then I had two other teenagers, uh, my younger siblings who came to live with me. So as, as you know, who I am and how I relate to this work, it's that I kind of on a professional level, I'm really excited that I've had a chance to do the work with Fostering Change and Vancouver Foundation. And I also feel really fortunate that I'm, I was able to be in a position where I could bring my lived experience into um, a piece of work that, that I continue to feel quite proud of. You definitely should. And lived experience, in my opinion, is definitely one of those things that just, it makes the work more meaningful to the person that's doing it. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really a great point. I think the other piece around engaging in work with lived experience is that it can also be a bit, um, it can be just kind of tough on an emotional level. Um, you know, when you're working alongside people who might not know that you're in the work and you have lived experience, sometimes there's this forgetfulness about the fact that we're talking about humans, we're talking about real people, not just like abstract ideas. Not just files. Not just files that, that you know, you never know day to day kind of who you're working with, what kind of lived experience they bring with them to, to the work they're doing that they're passionate about. So there was lots of learning for me around the, the value of lived experience and also I feel like I had to learn a lot about how to cope with bringing my lived experience to the work in a way that was um, kind of nourishing for me and not harmful for me. So can you tell us about the conception of fostering change? Like, who was there and how did it come into being? Um, Okay, so I've never been good at history. Um, I, but I, you know, someone who was good at history and geography was Mark Gifford. And so he, he was definitely there. Um, he would probably remember some of the details better than I could. So Mark, if you're listening, you should, you could have been here too. Um, let's see. It's kind of tricky because fostering change was, um, born out of an evolution of, of many years worth of work, um, done by the Vancouver Foundation. And so the Vancouver Foundation had been investing money through its grant making in a range of, um, projects. Uh, funding projects throughout the Lower Mainland and I think possibly in other parts of the province focused on kind of increasing access to housing um, for folks who are experiencing homelessness. And um, after the investment of a few million dollars and a few, you know, several years worth of grant making, decided to, to take a step back and think about where that investment might best serve the most amount of people. And, you know, was there, so this this conversation happened at a board level. So it's the Vancouver Foundation Board, and they got a foundation for whom this is totally not, you know, it's not okay for anyone to be homeless, but there's a particular um, feeling about young people experiencing homelessness. Um, and so, you know, they continued down a path of really focusing the, the grant making on youth homelessness. And at about 2012, I believe, yeah, it was 2012, uh, the Vancouver Foundation commissioned a piece of research to understand what kind of impact their work and their investments in the kind of housing and homelessness arena had had. And what came back were um, a series of recommendations and and out of the recommendations and the, the research, it was identified that there were a few particular audiences or population groups of folks who were experiencing homelessness at higher rates than others and for some reasons that were mostly tied to um, systemic barriers. And so um, 
you know, when, we, when Mark and I sat down and we looked at that research, it was really clear that there was one population for whom there was a lot of um, responsibility. And that group were kids in and from foster care. There was a high, uh, you know, there was a high um, recognition of young people in and from foster care experiencing homelessness. And it was like, well, wait a second, why is this happening? Like, if, if these young folks have been you know, been promised the care of family because their family can't provide support for them. Um, why are they ending up homelessness? This is ridiculous. Um, and so the focus shifted towards how do we, how do we kind of use all of the, the mechanisms that are available to us to uh, create a, a, a sense of change and a commitment to young people in and from care. And so the work started to shift. Um, and in 2013, uh, the development of a plan came forward, uh, and it and it took a couple of years before it kind of was branded with this idea of fostering change. Um, but essentially, the work of fostering change has always had four elements to it. Um, the first was youth engagement and how we made sure that young people with lived experience um, were at the center of helping us think through um, communications, grant making. Um, you know, public engagement, you know, the learning that we were doing, the research that was happening. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, there's so much. I could go on and on. I feel like I'm trying to figure out the, the most concise way to talk about it. Um, so maybe if I asked you the question over the years, how have you watched the Fostering Change Initiative grow? Would that be a helpful yeah, that's a helpful prompt. I mean, so what I would say is that that the work of the what was at the time called the Youth Homelessness Initiative, uh, there was a recognition after some public polling that there might be a way to engage public audiences in the caring and support of a new narrative for young people in and from care. And that in order to do that, we needed to think carefully about how we would talk about the issue to engage public audiences. And actually, there was one beautiful um, conversation we were having with the Youth Advisory Circle members and talking to them about, okay, like, if you want to transform the child welfare system, if you want to make sure that young people in and from care don't experience homelessness and they have this really great transition into adulthood, like, who do we need to talk to, you know? And so, you know, just a quick brainstorm. Who do you think they thought? Like, who were the kinds of people they were like, we need to talk to these people? And definitely needed to talk to social workers and MCFD, uh-huh. different legislatures, mm-hmm. community organizers. You need everyone from every sector, in my opinion, when you're talking about something as large as this. Yes. What I will say is that back then, I mean, this would have been in 2013 or 2014, it was all very focused on social workers, foster parents, MCFD, and it was in, and there was a very kind of blame-oriented focus. Like, we need to talk to them because they did this and it's bad and they, you know, they, uh, it's their responsibility. But there was this, like, moment in the conversation where um, we recognized that, that young people have had opportunities for many years to speak exactly to those audiences and that change wasn't happening quickly enough for young people. And that even if you could get in front of these folks, whether it's foster parents or social workers or MLAs, that you might not, you, you might 
even if you made sense to them, you weren't necessarily going to turn around and have your life change the next day because they were going to like rewrite a policy and then you would have a different experience in life. That in fact, um, many young people talked about like how they've had a chance to speak with those audiences and felt very heard, you know, had an opportunity to tell personal stories and feel heard and feel like their story impacted people on an emotional level. And yet social workers or, you know, policy analysts would, would go, you know, turn around and be like, well, I still can't, that still doesn't translate into policy. So, you know, so we had this conversation and eventually the Youth Advisory Circle had this revelation that maybe we needed to talk to a new audience and maybe that new audience was the broad public audience. Maybe the broad public audience could actually influence and impact MCFD in a way that young people from within the system couldn't. So that began a whole series of work around the development of a new narrative, which was how could we talk about the issues of foster kids and the issues that they face when they transition into out of foster care and into their, their young adult years in a way that would resonate with the broad public audience. And so I think it was really that learning that really started to shift um, the youth homelessness initiative into the fostering change work in terms of a brand and a communication. Um, and it was very driven by the Youth Advisory Circle members and um, their passion for wanting to be seen differently um, and, and, and wanting to be you know, held up and honored and valued as contributors to the community and not as burdens to the community. And so I feel really proud that we were able to create a platform by which they could do that work. That all sounds so lovely. So for you, what is the biggest win regarding this Vancouver Foundation initiative? Whew, that's a good question. Um, that, you know, there are so many kind of really beautiful wins along the way. Um, I can remember the first meeting I had here in Vancouver where we invited, we invited youth workers from all of the city's um, organizations that work directly with young people in and from foster care. We invited them to a meeting and said, hey, so we want to... Um, we want to create a, a youth advisory uh, filled with young people who have lived experience, who want to create change alongside adults. And at that meeting, there was a ton of skepticism. Youth workers from all over the city were like, young people don't have time for that. They're in survival mode. They're not interested. They're not going to show up, you know. There was a lot of skepticism for all kinds of good reason, but there was also a recognition that that frontline staff didn't have the ability to like support young people to participate and engage. When when I came back with this this kind of revised vision that you know we weren't going to be um, chatting with young people who were in the serious throes of survival, and that w in fact we wanted young people who would self-identify as leaders who want to work with adults and create change. That 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 young people actually were interested in research and they were interested in policy and they did want to make change. They just needed to, to have some tools in order to do that. So one of the biggest things that I find a lot of pride in is that nowadays more and more frontline staff, they recognize the value and the wisdom of young people. 
both in their day-to-day service delivery, but in program program and policy development. And I think that's a really big win. That the the kind of skepticism that existed in the community, um, I think, has been eroded by this like consistent, wise presence of young people um, kind of showing up and 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 being these amazing leaders. I think additionally. Um, you know, there's been an in, there's a total increase in collaboration and in learning between organizations that didn't exist um, kind of at the, the same level in this area of young people leaving foster care. Um, and then two, two other pieces, they're, they're kind of more flashy out in the world pieces. Um, the Write the Future campaign, uh, the petition, that asked people to um, sign support. You know, the Youth Advisory Circle members were like, you know, how many people do you think will actually sign? And, you know, this is a lot of energy and 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 money for the designing of this petition. And, you know, like, what's going to feel like it's worthwhile? Um, and at one point there was a conversation. It was like, you know, if we could get 5,000 signatures, that would be such a big deal. And so that's kind of where we set the bar. We're like, okay, let's let's get 5,000 signatures. Like, we have to be able to get 5,000 signatures. And it hit 5,000 signatures, and then it hit 10,000 signatures, and it hit 15,000 signatures. And every kind of step of the way, there was a lot of pride and a lot of, um, I think, a lot of celebration because, you know, what I got to witness was, you know, the young people who are part of the youth advisory circle, but I think young people in all other kinds of places started to feel like people in British Columbia, in their cities, were learning about them and were demonstrating by signing this petition that they cared about them and their futures and wanted them to be part of their community. And I think that, um, you know, I was really, I felt really proud to be part of something that was helping bring you know, a sense of pride and belonging to young people in and from foster care. Um, and, you know, now the, the Support the 700 campaign work is is continuing on and, you know, there's events coming up. There's the event on September 30th. There's the, you know, day at the legislature in October on the 24th. Um, these pieces of work come out of this idea that we could ask candidates to make a commitment and if they did that we would provide these mechanisms for young people and their allies to hold those candidates those those elected you know those politicians to account for what it is that they said they would do and that really all of those touch points were just another way for young people to build their skill and capacity to engage with decision makers and also help decision makers think differently about how to engage and work with young people. And so I think that's that's a place of pride for sure in this work. So in regards to the Fostering Change Initiative, what kind of projects have the Vancouver Foundation funded? Oh man, there have been a ton of different projects funded over the past several years. Um, there were kind of three ways that we looked at funding. Kind of, um, There were youth kind of youth-led pieces of work, uh, community building and collaboration work, um, and then these larger kind of multi-year grants. I would say that the, that the ones that I 
loved the most uh, were the ones that had a particular focus on supporting youth leadership and development. Um, because I really think that the biggest way to influence change in this sector is to engage young people with lived experience and to see organizations really um, provide the space and also um, work hard to shift how they're choosing to work alongside young people. It makes me kind of the happiest. Um, one of my favorite pieces of work, uh, one of the things that we funded often is um, arts-based and arts-focused work and it started uh, in you know with two projects one was with an organization called leave out violence and we did this um, kind of really cool multimedia piece called um, unpacking home in partnership with them uh, that was really interesting and provocative and fun um, and then the other was um, there was a there were these two community engaged artists that I got a chance to sit down with um, Patty Fraser and Corinne Brown and through conversation on this work they'd been doing around housing justice, um, you know, I just asked whether they, the, we might find a way to work together. And so they, they built, um, they worked with young people to do this really beautiful project called the 19th Birthday Party. Their um, ded dedication to community-engaged work uh, and the beauty of the installation and the way in which they build relationships with people um, is probably one of the most um, lovely things I've been able to witness in this work. And they use art in such a clear way um, for the engagement of community and for building relationship. So I, I feel really proud to have connected with them and to, um, and to just have been able to be part of supporting their work um, and, and, and showing to the rest of the community that the community-engaged art is really necessary for transformation and for social change. Um, you know, they've got another piece of work called The Portraits of Connection that are these series of beautiful black and white videos and stories. Um, and they're showing them, they're actually showing them uh, next week, I believe. Yeah, next week. There's October 3rd, I believe. Yeah, October 3rd. So yeah, they're showing them next week and uh, I'll be there and, and really excited to see that work. So they they engaged with this subject area and with art in a way that I think um, engages very different kind of audiences to this conversation um, that, that are really fantastic. Uh, and the other thing that I would say is that the Vancouver Foundation invested, you know, a large amount of um, both financial and human resources in the the work of engaging the Youth Advisory Circle members. And so over the last four years, we've seen you know, um, a fluctuation of, of folks involved in that work. And we have a very small number of folks engaged in that work now. And it's, I believe, primarily because so many other organizations are meaningfully involving young people in their Chris, own work. Chris, would you be able to tell win. me about the creation of the name Fostering Change? Yeah, OK. Um, the creation of the name happened in a boring boardroom. However, what I will say is that there were some really kind of amazing and creative folks who were uh, with us during that time. Um, Fostering Change was just one of a few names that um, we had been pitched and were being played around with um, by some designers and community engagement and communications folks that we were working with. 
And um, I would say that w- what makes me most excited about fostering change is that how much the youth advisory circle members were engaged in that process. Um, you know, so they were a part of conversations in the development of like different names and figuring out which ones were better. I mean, one of the names that makes me chuckle when I look back is uh, was 19 Up. You know, so like just can you imagine that like all of the fostering change work could have been called 19 Up. Um, that was a name in consideration for a bit. Uh, one of the things that was really great about working with some of um, the people at that time is that they worked to engage the Youth Advisory Circle member in the in the color design and in the conception of the website. So when you look at the website, there's some really interesting things about um, the web page that might seem just like whatever, you know, like interesting design elements, but they actually come from um, the Youth Advisory Circle members when they um, were invited to do some creative arts engagement. And they they did these big, beautiful collages. And so we spent an afternoon like tearing colors and letters and um, fonts and feelings out of magazines and making our own collage boards those collage boards were then taken by um, you know amazing team of folks and they came back with these like concepts these design concepts that that tried to um, mimic a handwritten element so if you look at the fostering change logo it looks like it's been done by handwriting um, that we wanted it to have this like gritty appearance, but also still be very clear um, and and clean. Like so, we didn't want it to be like messy and crazy, and you know, um, those aren't the right adjectives. But you know, how did we make it so that it was very inviting? Um, and how did we find colors that were very unique and that didn't necessarily um, clash or? possibly inadvertently represent other organizations, right? Because there are lots of organizations doing good work and we didn't want to step on anyone's toes for the brand making. Um, but really the the name and the design, that comes from um, the, the artistic vision of the Youth Advisory Circle members. And so uh, it, I'm not surprised that it's a name and a, and a design that speaks to a lot of people because it was created by people um, who wanted to be inviting and represent who they are. So yeah, that's a bit of fostering change. Lovely. I say lovely so much. It's lovely is a good word. Sometimes. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to thank you again for your time. And it's been an honor to be able to have interviewed you. Thank you. It was um, it's been exciting to to be invited down. I've been listening to your show for a while, and um, I look forward to kind of continuing to listen and to hear all the great work that you guys keep doing. And it's just so amazing to see organizations and young people kind of working together to keep making space for the voices of young folks. So, thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you for listening to As Word Spreads, a production of First Call BC Child and Youth Advocacy Coalition. This was an episode of As Word Spreads. Stay tuned for more of the world as youth see it. What was the a bit different thing you guys did today? Usually there's like a topic that we talk about.